Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. If this is your first time joining us in the new year, uh, we are going to be spending this new year, at least the first part of it, journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so uh, we are sending out daily devotionals. If you're not receiving those daily devotionals but would like to, <clears throat> simply write devotions on your prayer card, on your you know attendance card, or when you check in online in the prayer request section, we'll make sure that you get those daily devotions. And our, our goal is to read through the Gospel of Matthew between now and this coming evening. Easter. So uh, we hope you'll be enjoy being part of this journey and following along the, the adventures and travels of Jesus and his disciples. We're calling the current series we're in the Remarkable Ordinary. That's the title we kind of landed on um, in, in recognition that, you know, Jesus called ordinary people to be his disciples. And, and it's a lot of the stories that we'll be talking about that involve ordinary items, items that were ordinary in his day, you know, boats, nets, baskets, and, 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 but Jesus somehow endowed with, with deeper meaning and purpose. And even today, you know, Jesus continues to call ordinary people to follow him. Uh, the title of the book, uh, the title of the series, Remarkable Ordinary, comes from a book by Frederick Beekner. I'd never read it before. Uh, our youth pastor, Zach Cheeseman, recommended it to me, and I, I thought, oh, I'll get the book and I'll read it over Christmas, which uh, I did, and, and it's a very good book, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the Gospel of Matthew. So, <laughs> so I, I recommend it if you want to read, but if you want to just stick with the uh, Gospel of Matthew, we decided, though, it was a great title, and we want to stick with it, because that is what, where Jesus calls us to follow him in, in the remarkable ordinary of everyday life to be his disciple. And so that's kind of what I want to start our journey with this morning is just thinking about what does it mean to be a disciple? What does that word mean? Well, uh, my favorite definition comes from a, a book by James Harnish. My first year that we were here, uh, that I was here at the church, I, I, I led the church to a series on called uh, Path of Discipleship. And the way he defines uh, disciple in that, in that book, The Path of Discipleship, is this. A disciple is a follower of Jesus whose life is centering on loving God and loving others. I mean, it's, you know, the first word, a follower of Jesus, that is more basic, most basic, most core meaning, a disciple is a follower. Now, in Jesus' day, 
follower meant literally that you would literally follow on foot where your disciple or where your rabbi went you would follow them you would go with them but it, you know in today like we can't physically follow Jesus but we still metaphorically we follow Jesus's way and his teaching to be a, f- a disciple is to be a follower and then I love the next part of that whose life is centering on loving God and loving others it's a lifelong journey It's a lifelong process. We never stop being followers. But the journey is about centering our lives on loving God and loving others to become the people that Jesus wants us to be, that God calls us to be. That's uh, the journey of discipleship. Now, Jesus wasn't the first one uh, to invent this concept of discipleship. It was a common practice in his day and in his culture that if you wanted to be a rabbi, if you wanted to be a prophet, that you would have, uh, you would first become a disciple. Rabbis and prophets, they had disciples who followed them physically, who went with them wherever they went, who observed them, who assisted in the work and the teaching, who learned their, you know, adopted their, their teachings and their ways and their practices and eventually helped make it their own and then disseminated it to others. That was what a disciple did. And, 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 if you were a disciple back in that day, there's, a, a, there's when we were talking about this, Pastor Kim uh, mentioned a, a model of leadership development that I've heard populated in our world today, but I think it's rooted in this whole idea of discipleship. It goes like this. It goes uh, from, I do, you watch, to I do, you help, then you do, and I help, then you do, I watch. That's kind of this model, this modern model of, of leadership development. But to me, that's very descriptive of what discipleship is about. Jesus gave his disciples opportunities to watch him in ministry. He gave them opportunities to help him in ministry. He even gave them opportunities to try things out on their own. They frequently failed, but he was there to help them and to fix and help them learn through the process, all with the purpose that one day they could do on their own. They could be leaders of the church. They could perform the miracles and wonders that Jesus performed. They could teach and spread his message to others. And others then could watch and the cycle could repeat itself. This model of discipleship was ingrained in the early church and has continued down through all the generations until us today. So if you are a disciple, I guess this is my main point, is if, if you're a disciple, to, to be a disciple is to be a learner. To be a disciple means to take the posture of learning. It requires humility. It means we're not an expert, We're not here to prove our authority, to show off what we know. If we're a disciple, we take the position of wanting to learn, wanting to follow, being willing to fail, being willing to be corrected at times, because that's what a disciple does. A disciple is a learner, a follower who is in training to become a rabbi. If you, you know, followed long enough, maybe someday you might become a rabbi. In his book, uh, Velvet Elvis, Rob Bell uh, describes the, the, the structure of Jewish education in the first century in which Jesus lived. And in those days, the, the, the you know, Jewish education centered in the synagogue. And it was very much focused on literacy, you know, being able to read and write. Uh, those, those were the basic skills that they were trying to teach people. And so if you're in a synagogue and you're focused on literacy, what do you think their text was? Scripture. 
That's what the people learn, you know, that's what they, they learned as a way of learning literacy. So there are three different levels that he describes, Bet Seder, Bet Talmud, and Bet Midrash. So the first level of education was open primarily to, you know, I say all children, primarily males, although I'm sure there were some, women, some girls who got to participate in Bet Seder. And, and they would focus in that first level of education on the Torah, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the stories of the patriarchs that we looked at this past uh, fall, the, the stories of Moses, the, the, the gift of the law and the Ten Commandments. And children would learn the, you know, the, the stories of, of the Torah, and they, would, and they would memorize portions of the law and portions of the story. And because we have to remember, this is a preliterate society. It wasn't like, you know, everyone had copies of their own Bible to look at and read. They, instead, they would, they would often learn by recitation and by memorization, by call and response. And so children would learn the Bet Seder. And over the course of their, you know, however long that, that first level of education learned, a lot of students would memorize large portions of, of the stories in Genesis, Exodus, and so forth. Then they would move to the next level of Jewish education, which is Bet Talmud. Now, some students at this point would break off. They didn't have the aptitude for these kind of religious training and studies, and so they would then break off to be apprenticed to a trade, you know, to be a farmer, fisherman, you know, a, a carpenter, whatever, you know, the trade might be, they would be, they would follow into that trade. But those who were kind of bright and had an aptitude would continue on to Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud, they would continue to study the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, the Nevi'im, which, you know, means prophets, but it was much bigger than just the prophets. They would study the prophets, but they also study the wisdom literature of, you know, Proverbs and, and Job's and Ecclesiastes. They would, they would, they would uh, study the, the Psalms. They would study all the history, beginning with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. They, they would study all those. And, and again, a lot of their, memor- their study would be in the form of, of, of memorization, being able to recite back huge portions, sections of the Old Testament as we know it today. And so by the time they get to Bet Midrash, which is the third level, there's kind of this funneling, this weaning out of the students that couldn't quite keep up. So then by the time they reach the, the third level, Bet Midrash, it's just the best and the brightest who moved to that section. And in Bet Midrash, the focus wasn't on being able to recite, recall, memorize the story, but it was more focused on understanding and application, interpretation. So they would, you know, get together and, and they would discuss texts, but it wasn't just about memorizing, it was about also knowing the history of interpretation of those texts, how this, you know, this rabbinic school of thought disagreed with this rabbinic school of thought, and they would be, go back and forth trying to get at the deeper meaning and application of God's word. And then if you went through all those levels and reached the very, you know, completed your studies, reached the very pinnacle, then you could apply to become a disciple. Now, when I was in college, I was a studio art major. And there was this rite of passage that every art major at my school had to go through. We called it the list. So the beginning of your senior year, our senior year, we were given a list of 300 artists. And it was an independent study course. There was no class that you attended. You were just given this list of 300 artists and we were told, research them. 
So we would go to the library or wherever we had to go and, you know, look up folios and, 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 and we were told, you know, we were told, well, what do we need to know about each artist? They said, well, learn everything you can. But, you know, at the least we had to be able to trace their art from early stages and middle stages and later stages to see how their art grew and developed over the course of their lifetime. We had to understand where they were situated in art history not just what movement they were part of, but what came before and what came after. What influences did we see in their work? And then how did their work influence other artists who came after them? You had to know these artists inside and out, 300 of them. And then at the end of the year, because it was you know, a whole year-long process, at the end of the year, our spring semester, we would have an interview where you would sit down with a panel of art professors and they would name five of the artists off that list of 300. And you would, uh, you know, an oral examination, you would just begin speaking about everything you knew about that artist and you would answer questions that they had and ask us about this work of art or what that work of art, that's how it went. It was incredibly nerve wracking that your entire grade came down to one oral exam on five artists out of 300 that you spent a year studying. And I think about how nerve-wracking that had to be, how, how, how intensive it was to study for that. And I think that probably doesn't even compare to what disciples had to learn if they wanted to become a rabbi, because that was the process for them. After they completed Bet Midrash, then someone who wanted to go on to become a disciple would attach themselves to a rabbi, would probably follow and learn from them a little bit, but there would come a point in which they would interview with that rabbi and that rabbi would grill them over the course, you know, on the entire Old Testament, anything, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, anything was game for the rabbi to ask about. And the rabbi didn't just want to know, you know, can you quote First Chronicles 6, 9? Instead, the, the, the rabbi would want to know, can you understand it? Do you know all the history of interpretation? What do you think it means? What did this rabbi say about it? How do those things speak to each other? It was an incredibly grueling process that only the best of the best could survive. And here's why. It's because rabbis understood it as a sacred trust to pass on the faith from one generation to another. They understood themselves as being part of a long line of those who had safeguarded and held on to the scriptures and passed them down from generation to generation, not just the words themselves, but what they meant and how we were to apply them in daily life. To be a rabbi was to hold a position of incredible, not just importance, but, but a sacred trust that was given to you. And a rabbi needed to know, if they chose you to be their disciple, that one day you could do what they were doing. It was an incredibly selective process. And here's what's interesting when we look at how Jesus chose disciples. It's both selective and inclusive at the same time. First, it was selective. We need to acknowledge Jesus chose only 12 disciples. And there were lots of people who came to Jesus who wanted to be his disciple, who said, can we follow you? And, and there were people that Jesus turned away Sometimes because they were preoccupied with some other task that they had to accomplish first. Sometimes because they had possessions, like the rich young ruler, they just couldn't let go of. So that's a reality that, that not everyone who wanted to follow Jesus became his disciple. And maybe Jesus also recognized, you know, that you, 
human limits, that there's only so much time and energy, he could only invest himself relationally in, in, in a small group of people, that if, if they were truly going to be able to do what he could do, he had, to, he had to be strategic about how he invested his time, his energy, his relationships with others. You know, the more we spread ourselves out, the less impact we often have. But what, probably the primary reason that Jesus chose 12 was because of the symbolism that it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. We, we talked about last week how Jesus, his baptism and then his 40 days in the wilderness paralleled Israel's experience passing through the Red Sea and then 40 years wandering in the wilderness as well. So again, Jesus is, is, is kind of creating a new history, a new story of Israel. And, and that's what's taking place at this time. So Jesus only chose 12 disciples. So there's a selective process. But within those 12, it was amazingly inclusive and diverse. Now, I pause here for just a moment because after the 9.30 service, someone asked me, um, wait a second, they're all men. They're all Jewish. How diverse and inclusive could it be, right? <laughs> and, and there's some truth to that. Uh, she especially wanted to know, well, how come there's no women among the 12? And, and, I, I, and we did talk for a while because I do think it's important to note there were many people who were followers of Jesus, especially women, who were not included among the 12 disciples. And in fact, it was the, the women who followed Jesus who were the first to go to the tomb on Easter morning and to, to discover his resurrection. So I think within Jesus' ministry, there was the, the yeast, the seed of, of empowerment that later led to women being of equal standing with men. In, but in the cultural context in which Jesus lived, men were disciples, men were rabbis, and so he chose 12 disciples. But even within these 12 men that he chose, there's still incredible diversity. For instance, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, we think of them all as fishermen, right? So, at least I did. I always thought of them in the same boat. But as I was researching this, uh, this passage for today, one of the things I'd never realized before was uh, there are different sociological classes within fishermen. There were those who were wealthy, who owned the boats, who possessed the capital, and would hire others out to work on their boats. Now, we know James and John were in that class of fishermen because their father, Zebedee, owned the boats on which they worked. However, Simon, Peter, and Andrew were not told that their parents you know, owned the boat. All we hear about is their nets. So they likely belonged to the lower class of fishermen who had hired themselves out to work on other people's boats. Isn't that interesting? To think that even among these four, that we think of all in the same class, and yet there is likely within them a range of income, a range of capital, different stations in society. Or another one to look at is Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Now, Matthew, as we know, was a tax collector, which meant he was wealthy for starters, but tax collectors were people who had chosen to collaborate with the Roman Empire, the Roman government. They collected taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire from the people. And by many people in Jewish society, they were seen as traitors. Now, Simon the Zealot, though, we don't know a whole lot about Simon the Zealot, except we know he was the Zealot. He was a Zealot. And Zealots, for, if you, in case you don't know, Zealots were people who had, who had pledged themselves to resistance against the Roman Empire. Their mission, their purpose was to over, overthrow the Roman Empire by any means necessary. And by any means necessary often meant armed resistance, violent 
resistance. And so here in this small group of 12 people that Jesus invited, he chose two people who could not be further apart in political ideology. Matthew, someone who was a collaborator with the Roman Empire, and Simon the Zealot, someone who was pledged to the overthrow of that same empire. And yet he called them together to be his disciples. Within the 12 disciples, we can see people from every walk of life, people from every station of society, rich, poor different levels of education, different political ideologies. There was, they didn't have a whole lot in common except this one thing. What unified the disciples is that every single one of them was called by Jesus to follow him. And every single one of them, when they received the call, they said, yes, that's it. That's the essence, the core of discipleship. Jesus invites and he says, come, follow me. And, and, and to me, it's incredibly, wonderfully good news that Jesus didn't call the best and the brightest. He didn't call the upper crust. He didn't call the elite. He, he called everyday people in everyday lives to follow him, he, which means that we today, every single one of us are likewise called to be disciples. Now, you may feel like I am not qualified to follow Jesus. Like, I don't know, we kind of do these trips on ourselves where we say, well, I can't quote scripture the way the pastor quotes scripture. Or we say to ourselves, well, I can't pray. My, my internal prayer life is a mess. Or, or I certainly could never stand up and give a, a beautiful prayer like Jamelin or Kim or one of the pastors could do. Or we may say to ourselves, well, I don't, I'm not especially generous. I don't, I don't necessarily have a lot of gifts to give others financially. Or when you think, well, if you knew my past, if you knew the problems I'm still wrestling with and dealing with, how, how messy my life is, I, I, I can't be a disciple. That's, but here's the thing. None of those things are prerequisites to following Jesus. He doesn't care. He's not interested. If we don't know scripture, if we don't can't pray if we aren't rich, if we, you know, what our political ideology, he doesn't care. He simply calls, come, follow me, and I will teach you how to fish for people. That's the call and the promise. Now, what does the call require of us? Well, the call requires of us a willingness to leave our nets behind. Because Jesus makes it clear, my purpose is to fish for people. You know, he could say to the disciples, your whole life up to this point has been about, you know, catching fish. Like that's been your whole aim, your whole purpose, but I'm going to teach you how to fish for people, not fish the way, you know, nowadays we use that word fishing like it's for a scam, right? Like it's collecting data, collecting, we're trying to entrap people, trying to take advantage of. Jesus didn't want to entrap anyone. He wanted to set people free. He wanted to release them from debt. He wanted to liberate, to redeem and make people whole. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, if you follow me, I'll teach you how to do it. I'll make it so that you are able to do what I'm, you'll get to be involved in my work of salvation in the world. What a beautiful, wonderful, amazing promise Jesus makes. But to follow him, we have to be willing to leave our nets.
When Jesus found the disciples, the Bible says they were busy mending their broken nets. As pastors, as we talked about this, we started thinking a lot about that image of broken nets. Why were they broken? Well, because breakage was part of the day, daily work of being a fisherman. When you cast your net into the sea, the fish would strain against the nets and inevitably breakage would happen. If you were a successful fisher, fisherman, well, then your nets were broken all the time. And so when we come across Peter and Andrew and they're mending their broken nets, that tells us they've recently had a successful haul of fish that is requiring them to fix their broken nets. It tells us that they were successful at what they did, that they were good fishermen, that they knew the tools of their trade. They, they were skilled at what they did. And Jesus came to them and said, come to me, follow me, because I have something more for your life. Now, when I hear that something more, I don't know how you feel about that word more. It stresses me out instantly. Because I think, how could I add one more thing to my plate? But Jesus wasn't saying to the disciples, he was offering them a different kind of more. He wasn't saying, I'm offering you bigger boats, bigger nets, more holes that you have to mend. Jesus, the more that he offered wasn't success, the more that Jesus offered was meaning. Follow me and I'll make you fish for people. I'll teach you how to live a life that matters, a life of adventure, a life where you're not in control, a life where you'll make mistakes, but you'll learn from them, a life of following me as your master. And I'll teach you how to fish for people. How many of us, how many of us are trying to make a life with broken nets? We're busy. We're working our tails off. We're casting our nets into the sea, but we're just not bringing it in. Like, because the thing is, I think sometimes the nets that we're spending so much time fixing, they're not meant to bring us the life that is truly life. Jesus offers us a life that is truly life by following him, by leaving our nets behind. And when you came in today, some of you came in a little bit late, you may not have gotten it. There's a little piece of netting. If you didn't pick one as you came in and you pick one up as you go out. And I want you to think for just a moment about these nets. The thing about nets, if you tried to pick one up out of the basket, the thing I loved most is, the first thing I noticed is they all got tangled together. If you tried to pick one net, you probably got two or three others, because that's the thing about nets. They are meant to be entangling. They're meant to entangle the fish that you're trying to catch. But the thing is, sometimes we get entangled in the nets as well, don't we? I mean, I was thinking about what, if Jesus were to call us to leave our nets behind, what would we leave? Our laptops, our phones, our social media, our office, our position. What is it that Jesus calls us to leave? And I think it's anything from which we derive identity separate from being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's anything that we put before him. What is the net that so easily entangles? Maybe it's not something we draw identity from, but maybe it's a habit that we just can't break. Maybe it's a hurt that we just can't forgive. 
What are the nets that so easily entangle? Hebrews 1, 2 says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off the sin that so easily entangles and set our eyes on Jesus. Run the race that is set before, setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So one way to think about this is, what is it that entangles? What is it that keeps you from following Jesus. But another way to think about the nets is it's also, I mean, the disciples, as I said, were skilled fishermen. So the nets are things that entangle, but they're also things that we're gifted at or things that we might be gifted with. You know, for the disciples, well, following Jesus meant they had to literally leave those things behind so that they could go wherever Jesus went. But for us today, I don't know if it's quite the same. It's not necessarily that we have to get rid of our laptop, get rid of our position, get rid of our home and our family and all those things we care about. But rather, to me, it's more about, are they surrendered to God? Are they surrendered to God's purpose? Are they ways in which we continue to center our lives on loving God and loving people? So my thought for this little bit of netting it's kind of fun just to play with, right? But my thought was, is that you could set it somewhere, maybe at your office desk, maybe, you know, in your bathroom as you're getting ready in the morning, or maybe you just have it as a little, you know, fidget whenever you're bored and need a little something to play with. But, but as you play with it, I, my hope is, as you look at it, it'll prompt this prayer in your heart to say, Lord, I know what I got ahead of me today. You know the work, you know the to-dos, you know the, the things that I have scheduled and also all the unscheduled stuff that's going to happen. But help me this day not to get entangled, but instead help me to be surrendered so that the hours of my day and the work of my hands and the desires of my heart might be centered on loving God and loving you that I might be involved fully 100% in your mission of bringing wholeness and peace and justice and goodness into the world. So that's my hope and prayer for you, my hope and prayer for us as a church. Jesus said, come, follow me, and I'll teach you to fish for people. So may we, like the disciples, have the courage when we hear the call to leave behind our nets and to follow him. Amen.